Hello. Hello, hello. I, I don't know if you're hearing me, but I am not hearing anything. Can you hear me now? Ah, yes, there you are. And you hear me? Yeah, I do. Very good. Thank you uh, for making this work and uh, for taking the time to do this. Um, uh, could we say a word or two so I'm sure the sound is good? My name is Arthur Kleinman, and I've been a professor at Harvard for 43 years. Okay, three years longer than the 40 in the press release. Okay, um, thanks for doing this. I will begin in a moment. My co uh, my co-host could not join us. He had to travel on short notice, so it's just me. Um, and I will focus on uh, your new book, of course. And I'm sure you know you don't need uh, any preparation for that right okay okay so here we go hello welcome to spirit matters at spiritmatterstalk.com if you're a regular listener you are used to hearing dennis's voice at the opening of our interviews uh, he had a situation arise, and so I am doing it myself. And um, <clears throat> we are honored today to have with us Dr. Arthur Kleinman. Uh, Dr. Kleinman is a uh, renowned scholar and writer on psychiatry, anthropology, global health, and cultural issues in medicine. He's taught at Harvard for 43 years, currently professor of psychiatry and medical anthropology at Harvard Medical School, among other appointments, and is also a leading expert on uh, China uh, and the author of uh, The Illness Narratives, which is widely taught in medical schools, among other uh, books. His new book, is The Soul of Care, The Moral Education of a Husband and a Doctor. And that is what we're going to focus on in this interview. Dr. Kleinman, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. Um, the Soul of Care uh, seems to be both a memoir, a, a deeply personal memoir, um, and as well, uh, a sort of call for change in uh, caregiving in medicine. Um, if, if, if you don't mind, let's begin with the memoir part. Please uh, tell our audience the, the circumstances of uh, what has been called a painful decade in your life that led to the writing of this book. Yeah, sure. Um... Well, I was married for uh, about uh, 36 years, and my uh, wife, who was also my collaborator in research, and was herself a very fine China scholar 
and a, a wonderful human being and the mother of our two children, um, she developed early onset Alzheimer's disease, and she developed a very atypical variety of that awful disease, which arose in her occipital lobes. Those are the those are the lobes of the brain at the back of the head, which are responsible first for vision, then as you move forward for all kinds of interpretive activities. And so she was both, over time, she became both blind and developed dementia, the dementia of Alzheimer's. And that decade this is the period of time in which I was her primary caregiver. So she took care of me for 36 years, and I took care of her for 10 years. And at the end of that period, she died from her disease, Alzheimer's. And from my perspective, it that 10 years was a troubling, difficult period of time, the most difficult period in my life. But it was also a redeeming time, because I was able to reciprocate the wonderful care she had given to me over 36 years in those in that 10-year period. And also, I learned a great deal. It was almost as if a, a veil of ignorance was lifted from my eyes, which is surprising, because I had both been a clinician myself and a researcher on caregiving for a long period of time, and so from the 1960s on. And so um, uh, it was surprising that there were aspects of care, not just any aspects, but the most important aspects that I had been more or less blind to. And so what I learned during that period of time is really a strong part of what the book is about. Very good. And it sounds like uh, a profound uh, personal transformation. The subtitle of the book, The Moral Education of a Husband and Doctor. Um, the, the, the word moral uh, is, uh, strikes me as a as, uh, very interesting choice. Why was it a moral education of A and B? Uh, you were both husband and doctor. Were there different lessons that you learned in each of those roles? Uh, that's a very good question. I think the answer, would, short answer would be yes. Um, now, why was my education a moral education? Because I take moral to mean uh, that which is most at stake for us, which we feel really matters in our lives. I once wrote a book on this called What Really Matters. And I learned um, uh, that what really matters in caregiving are about seven or eight different things. First and foremost is the relationship. That's the basis of care and the reciprocity in that relationship. So that caregiving is not just about a caregiver, but it's about the care recipient, the person who's sick, who's the patient, etc., and their interaction, their intersubjective, if I can say, interaction which means that they are both present to each other. I learned a lot about presence. I learned a lot about ritual, because so much of care, the daily bathing, feeding, ambulating, becomes a ritual. And you can carry that ritual out mechanically, or you can carry it out with great presence. And it's the, it's the virtue of making caregiving central to your life to carry it out with uh, some degree of presence. 
even great presence if you can mobilize it. And then care is also about other things. It's about uh, burden on, on time and on energy and on finances. It's about frustration. It's about managing feelings that uh, can move very quickly from uh, frustrating feelings to anger, being able to control anger, very important in the setting of, of caregiving. Mm -hmm. And lastly, it's about the caring of memories. And um, I hadn't realized so clearly before how central memories are to caring, that um, when someone dies, caregiving doesn't stop. It's just that we reach into the archive of our memories and begin to reorder, reshuffle those memories, remake them, as it were, in order to guide our life from that point on. Mm. Um, and and my, that other part of my question about different lessons for husband and doctor, um, let me uh, elaborate on that a little bit. While you were being primary caregiver, um, many husbands are called into that role, but not very many are doctors as well. How did those two uh, roles, those two, you could say, areas of expertise in your life, um, how did they come together? Did they conflict? And, and what did you learn in each case? Well, I think the, um, they, you know, they came together in different ways. So um, uh, in one sense, it was um, uh, an advantage being a physician because I knew a lot of things that we would have to go through and expect, and I was very well known at, uh, at around the hospitals at Harvard, and people were very helpful to me uh, in the uh, in the clinical days. But um, I think what I had failed to see as a clinician, and that I learned, was that you really have to understand uh, Alzheimer's disease or any disease in the context of family life. Mm. And, and when in my role as a physician, as, as Joan's uh, husband, but also a physician, I tried to present that to my clinical colleagues, they really uh, uh, couldn't understand it and were hesitant to talk about it, feeling that I was leaving my role as a physician and beginning to act like something else. Mm. And I think that's one of the failures of medicine is the failure to understand that most care is done in families and that the, uh, the, the um, connection, the communication between uh, professionals, physicians, nurses, physical therapists, others, <coughs> and, and uh, 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 the family and the patient is absolutely critical. And uh, there's a tendency for because of rules of privacy and uh, um, uh, and the like, for physicians to be hesitant nowadays to talk to families, and yet being unable to talk to families and being unable to imagine what the um, illness experience is doing to the family, how central the family is to the the whole problem, is a failure, a major failure in in medicine. And, um, and this is not, I mean, this became a central part of what I learned, but it's not news to researchers that the, Amer the uh, United States National Academy of Medicine put out a, 
a volume, a wonderful volume, two years ago, called um, uh, 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 "Caring uh, Families Caring for um, an Aging America," mm. and uh, it's all about the the failure in communication to families, so that an elderly person with after surgery comes home and is bewildered and has tubes coming out of their abdomen where they just had the surgery draining the abdomen. No one has ever explained to the family what these tubes are about or how you take care of them. Hmm. And they're petrified with fear and they don't know what to do. And often they um, will rush back into the emergency room with the patient, which is just a waste of everyone's time and the like. And a simple explanation would have taken care of this, but those simple explanations are not being made. Hmm. And that's part of the problem for medicine today, that medicine is losing care. How do you account for that? What factors have gone into that? Uh, is, and is it a change? Was it different in the past? Yes, I think it's a change. It's a change. I think that the combination of big, uh, big business and big government uh, transformed medicine to something completely different than when I entered medical school in 1962. Um, now the uh, physician is uh, is um, burdened with all kinds of things that were not uh, problems at that time. One of them is that you're either on the telephone with or responding in other ways to insurance companies, to uh, care managers, to the huge administrative structure of our healthcare system, which accounts for about one third of its cost and just um, transforms a doctor from a uh, professional into a, um, a worker on the factory floor. Mm. And that worker on the factory floor is also beset by technology, which should, in theory, uh, help uh, care, but in practice makes care more difficult, like the electronic medical record, which in theory is a wonderful tool to have, but in practice, is so complicated and difficult to use that when you enter your doctor's office, her back is often turned to you because she can't figure out the darn screen that's in front of her. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and there are many other examples of technology getting in the way. For example, an important part of medicine always has been the physical exam, not only because what the physical exam shows, because it's the time that the doctor puts hands on the patient. And it's that connection, very similar to the connection of, a, of the baby put on the chest of the mother or the father to make skin contact. That contact that's critical in, um, in, in how we both give the message that we are caring for someone, we're with them, and how physiologically we receive that message. Mm. And now physicians have become in in confident in their in their uh, physical uh, uh, skills, examination skills, physical examination skills, because they have all kinds of technology that can do a much more accurate job at the physical exam. And so they may just uh, make a perfunctory or even no physical exam. And I think that that's a, that's a failure in, in, in the connection, in the caring that's critical. And, uh, and I think has very very unfortunate consequences, which is increasing alienation of patients, distrust, 
feeling that they're alone in their in their uh, in their illness experience and no one's with them. So I think that that um, we have engendered a medical system of immense chaos and uh, a complexity beyond anything we can map that has frustrated just about everyone. And in medicine has led to what I would call the loss of the human element of caring. Mm. Not because physicians and even health policy experts don't want there to be care. I think they genuinely want there to be care. But the obstacles seem to be insurmountable. And that's the reason why we see, I think, so many physicians burning out mm. because they came into medicine usually with a, with a human concern of helping people doing good in the world, and they find themselves uh, in, in a, uh, basically as, a, as technicians, um, not dissimilar to car mechanics. Mm. I think that, you know, the, the patients feel that, they understand that, and it has an uh, uh, incredibly negative effect. But the other thing that's happening, which uh, if you had asked me a few years ago uh, if it was happening, I would have said, I, I don't see it, that I saw um, with, through my experience as a family caregiver, is that families are losing care as well. And oh. now live in a, we live in a world where, if you think of the past, even the relatively recent past, we benefited enormously from the fact that most care was provided by women uncompensated as part of what it meant to be a mother and a spouse and a, a female member of a family. And women, rightly so, have now dug out their own careers. And so we have both men and women working, and that, that's a good thing. But the men have not picked up for the women in the caregiving role. And hence, in a sense, there's no one home to give care. Uh, and, uh, and not only has there been this sort of decline in the hours available for families to give care, but there has, uh, there, there, the, the mechanisms we've had for substituting in families have become increasingly costly and increasingly difficult to mobilize. So, for example, I couldn't possibly have sustained and endured 10 years of the kind of caregiving I gave um, every night, every morning, and all weekends if it weren't for the fact that I had a home health aide who worked from nine to five, five days a week, mm -hmm. so that I could continue work, continue working, and, and having an income, and also that I could um, <laughs> that I could uh, um, uh, have respite right. from from the enormous pressure of caregiving. So, so therefore, you know, we're in, in, in this world, you know, maybe is, uh, as we go forward is one that we're going to see in, in increasingly in troubled ways because of this threat to the human. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to the uh, personal story. Yeah. Uh, but, but before I do, what you just said, uh, I'm sure that uh, other factors like mobility, people don't live around their extended families the way they used to. People aren't as intimate with their neighbors as they used to be. I remember growing up in New York City, and if if someone was sick, you had you know a whole bev bevy of people available to help out. Um, and 
uh, I also wanted to ask about the role of uh, of nurses. What you described uh, about the the doctor's life uh, does that put more burden on other uh, caregivers in in places like hospitals, uh, nurses, the attendants, and that sort of thing? Is there no uh, making up for it from the if you think of hospitals, um, uh, nurses classically did the caregiving, the real caregiving that I'm talking about, yeah. the hands-on work of doing the care. Um, and now nurses are working with the technology, doing supervision, filling out forms, are much less likely to do the hands-on caregiving. Huh. That's done by nursing assistants. Hmm. When we look at who are the nursing assistants, they're often the same people who are the home health aides. They're poor women of color, often recent immigrants, who can't find an alternative job. Uh -huh. um, uh, this is what this is the most available uh, means of getting uh, an income, and it's very tough work. It has no status. It's poorly paid, and yet remarkably. Those women of color give remarkable care. My wife, at the end of her life, the last nine months, was spent in a cognitive care unit, a very good one in Massachusetts. And the most of the aides, the vast majority, were Haitian women, and they gave her superb care, superb. Mm. And what amazed me was they did this in spite of the fact that it was backbreaking work that it was poorly compensated, that it gave them no status uh, and the like. And if they had an alternative, they would have jumped to the alternative. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience with my father. Um, most of our listeners are uh, come to our uh, podcast because they're interested in various aspects of spirituality. Um, in your case, uh, this transformation that occurred uh, through the, uh, giving that 10 years of care to your wife. Um, did it change you uh, from the perspective of what we would typically call religion or spirituality? Did it change your outlook on that area of life in, in any way? Yes, you know, I would. That's why I use the word soul. I, I thought that may be the case. Because ultimately, ultimately uh, the soul of care becomes care of the soul. That is, um, contrary to the myth in our society that you uh, find yourself and then you do things in the world, which is, in everything I've experienced, is nonsense. You find yourself through others. You find yourself through others. I found myself through my wife. She socialized me to be a caregiver. I was raised in a very unpromising way. I was wantonly careless as a youth and child. I was not raised with the message that caregiving was something that I should be, uh, I should be trained in and should, should value. I came to this laterally, and through my wife's wonderful socialization of me, of what was important in life, what was at stake, was what was crucial to me. And it was that that made my care for her and her bravery and remarkable um, 
endurance in uh, in care made it possible for us to keep presence going so that almost until the end, she was deeply present for me in a moral, spiritual, emotional way. And I was for her. Uh, I worked very hard at that. She worked very hard at that. That was what made our lives meaningful. And I think that in the experience of care, um, I recognize once again that this was an opportunity to redeem myself, so to speak. It was an act of redemption for me uh, to be able to uh, transform who I was. I was a very hard-driving academic and clinician. I'd been very successful in every area of my work. It was my wife who dealt with the human side of things. Uh, and for me, it was just getting papers and books out. And uh, when I was with my patients, taking very good care of my patients. But otherwise in life, I, I, I didn't attend to, to others in the way I should have. And I learned all of that in caregiving and for my wife. It, 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 as I said, it redeemed me. My mother, who loved me deeply and who died at 102 and who helped with the care in many ways, as did my children, my mother once said to me, it's made you human. And she really meant that. And so I think the spirituality is part of this. It's part of the what keeps you going, the sense of that there's some larger importance to this, that this is doing good in the world. This is about being something for someone else who means everything to you. So, you know, I'm both an anthropologist and a psychiatrist. And on the anthropology side, Anthropologists tend to, the view in anthropology is that men and women created gods. God didn't create them. But once gods were created, they took on a life of their own. So that the divine, uh, sacred, the spiritual, whatever we want to call it, is present in the world because of our human presence. And I could feel that in my caring for my wife, and she felt it through me. She was... Uh, your uh, mainstream uh, Protestant, uh, uh, deeply uh, uh, engaged with uh, religious I ideas of a broad nature. She, she, there wasn't a religion in the world that she didn't know something about and wasn't interested in. But her, she was non-denominational. She didn't believe in institutional religion. It was the spirit. It was the uh, the meaning of religion. It was the lived experience of it that meant something to her mm. uh, and that I, I came out of a jewish background um it, she she made me more religious in the sense of of understanding that one could live a kind of spirit in one what in what one did and that's what i found caregiving to be about i found that you're really a caregiver when you're doing the actual acts of care mm. when helping feed someone, ambulate them, bathe them. And those become rituals from day to day. And as you get into that ritual, not only do you expect it, but you participate in it fully, and your mind and goes with it. Your emotions go with it. You know, Aristotle once said that it, um, we do brave acts, and that makes us brave. We do good acts, 
and that makes us good. We do caregiving acts, in my view, and that makes us a caregiver. Mm. Um, I have not had anything close to your 10 years of experience as a caregiver, but in the few uh, times when I've had to do things like that, um, I noticed there was a kind of grace in it, and I attribute it to the fact that for that time, I was focused on giving care to a person who needed it and whom I loved. Uh, I, was, I, I could not and did not think about myself at all. It was egoless. And I wonder if, if that resonates with your experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I tried to say. You said it very well. And um, I think that the, you know, care, we think of care at its core, it's love. Uh, it isn't sexual love. It's, it's love in our emotional contact with someone else who we want to bring the very best to and who makes us alive and who we make alive through our acts. It's this reciprocity in the relationship of care. It's presence. It's that presence that we bring, that we're humanly there doing this, even if it's, it's becomes routine or actually because it becomes routine, we can bring that presence there regularly. But that presence is engaging and bringing forth the presence of the person who we're caring for. So they're very much in this, even if they can't speak, even if they cannot uh, communicate effectively, they're there by their being. And I think that as a way of being in the world, caregiving is testament to that deepest emotional and moral side of us mm. that um, I have uh, felt is critical, not just to family care, but to um, professional care. That is, that the, uh, professional care is also about uh, losing yourself in the care of others, having ego drop out and doing the acts that are critical. And I think that um, that's, again, what we're losing. We're losing that. And that's what we should be concerned about. So we Is have that... a debate. Can, let me just finish this yeah, point. Please. Fine, Philip. Um, we have a great debate going on about our healthcare system. And it's about, what is it about? It's about finance and it's about institutional efficiencies. But that's not what is at the center of healthcare. At the center of healthcare is caregiving. And that's what we should be talking about because that's under assault. Very good. Um, two questions. Is that what, what you said a, a bit earlier about uh, we talked about being without ego. Is that what you mean by being present? Because you use that term, being present and presence a lot. I'm curious what you mean by it. By presence, I mean that fullness of being that we feel when we're in love with someone, that we feel when we're brought out by something that elicits it from us, a great book, a great poem, a great picture, something that brings our self forward that brings us fully into our, ourselves. Part of that is the dropping off of, uh, of ego and the worries about um, uh, the everyday and just our being, our, our being is there in its fullness. And I think that that, that is at, at the core what presence is. And presence we feel um, or we don't feel it when we're taking care of someone else. 
And if we don't feel it, what we get is a kind of mechanical way of carrying out tasks. Mm. That leads to a sort of bureaucratic, um, uh, a bureaucratic inattention or um, uh, a, a, a lack of, of um, uh, interaction, a, a deadening of the relationship, something that, that weakens who we are, that undermines us, that probably has a physiological effect as well, because instead of giving us confidence or hope or um, a sense that we're, we're being accompanied, we're being accompanied in life, it gives us the sense that we don't matter. And I think nothing could be worse than that mechanical, bureaucratic inattention. Mm. Uh, as a result of your tenure experience, and we could say a personal uh, education or transformation, um, in addition to uh, what you came to see uh, about caregiving and uh, medical care, uh, how has it changed you? How, how are you different? Uh, what would other people say is different about you after uh, your wife passed and you were no longer in that role of caregiver? Well, I'll give, I'll, I give an example in the book. Um, it's the epilogue to the book. And so the epilogue takes place after my wife has died and um, the lesson that I learned about care comes up when I'm in the middle of an active uh, academic day and I have under my schedule uh, someone from another university who wanted to see me, um, who uh, had, a, had a project, a research project. And I was really not interested in this project. And I had other things I wanted to do. But when I met him, I got a sense. I intuited, much as a clinician would, I intuited there was something wrong. There was some problem he was having. Now, in the course of my normal academic day, if he weren't my patient, or if I weren't doing research with him, I would have just run away from that. I would have paid no attention to it, brought the discussion to a quick end, and gotten on to the other things I had to do. But this time, I stopped myself, and I said you know, to him, listen, speak to me about what bothers you, because I can see that there's something bothering you. And he had a a large problem uh, that he told me about. We spent a long period of time doing this, and I was, I was engaged with him. I was caring for him in this, in a way I never would have done, never would have done before. Mm -hmm. And I think that that speaks to the fact that something changes in you as you become a caregiver. The very, it's like a, it's like those pillows that uh, we sink our head into, and they have a kind of memory foam that keeps the indentation. Mm. We keep that memory of the care we gave, and all of a sudden there's an opportunity to do it again, and we do it, and uh, we're in it. And it's not a matter of thinking, deciding. It's just there. Uh, it's part of who we are now. So I'm a different I'm a different person now uh, uh, than I was before. I'm, uh, I, and I'm a fuller person. I, I, I'm a better person in my view. Now, I don't want to overemphasize this. It's not like I was a terrible <laughs> autocratic right. who was remade. Uh, this, this, this sort of put 
it, it, it knocked the edges off things. It mm. softened me. It, it, it brought a, you know, a, if, you know, if we talk about, uh, I was raised at a time, and probably you were, when there was a sense of masculinity mm. that um, uh, made it difficult to show emotion or to um, make care a direct act that you participated in. I grew up in a very tough neighborhood in Brooklyn. I was a, uh, a very tough kid. We might a, have been in the same neighborhood. I was wantonly inattentive to others and to myself. I uh, was a bully, etc. That was not promising for me. And at this point in my life, not only do I see how far I've come and where this trajectory has taken me, but there's a, a fullness to my being. There's a completeness. There's more of a, of a sense of I know who I am. I know where I stand. I know what's important. And I can be masculine with that caregiving as part of it. Very so the, good. A different, a different sense of myself. We have only a few more minutes left. I have a couple of important questions, uh, but first a trivial one. What neighborhood did you grow up in? I grew up in uh, Crown Heights. In oh, yes. Eastern my, Parkway. Yes, very close to Eastern Parkway. <laughs> I used to go to the, uh, to the Jewish uh, uh, um, uh, synagogue on Eastern Parkway. <laughs> Um, I hope you didn't bully me on my way to the subway station and uh, you, might, you might being have. a few years older. I'll tell you a thing which we can now look about as a news. <laughs> I was such a troubled, difficult kid that the police put me into the Police Athletic Association boxing. Oh, my. Um, and uh, what got my parents eventually to move from where I was was that um, one day a man came up and ruffled my hair and said, we have our eyes on you. You're doing good, kid. And a few weeks later, we saw his picture in the New York Times <laughs> where he was one of the hitmen for the mafia. Oh, God. So, uh, so I was clearly on the wrong track. Yes, I get it. You would have had an assignment any minute if you uh, didn't leave. Um, two questions, um, uh, and this is uh, about uh, what would you prescribe or suggest by way of reform in first in the, in, in the medical uh, uh, education and concern. And the other question is, what would you recommend to our listeners, you know, who might be thinking, boy, this sounds like a really valuable experience, but I don't have that opportunity. Are there ways to, uh, have the lessons of caregiving that you had by family misfortune, uh, are they replicable? Yes. Well, first, so let me reverse the okay. answers in reverse and say mm -hmm. that for as you if you're in my age cohort, I'm 78 years of age. Um, you can, we can call that in a sense the young elderly. You have uh, all kinds of opportunities to take care of uh, elderly people in your community if you look into uh, into those opportunities through various NGOs, um, other organizations, hospitals, uh, through volunteer work. So there, there, there isn't any reason that you can't participate in these kinds of things if you can't find uh, your own family uh, setting as one that you're, you're, you're doing this in. So I would say I would encourage people to search it out, that wisdom comes through doing things for others. And... Um, you should look for occasions to do that. 
Now, for medicine, oh yes, I have very specific things. So in some German and some Dutch medical schools, before the medical student starts becoming a medical student, when they've been admitted to medical school but haven't really started studies, they're sent for a week or 10 days to the homes of uh, families that have a, um, uh, a, a seriously ill or end-of-life uh, 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 member who's uh, dying, who's disabled, who needs uh, care. And all that they do, since they know nothing medically, these medical students, all that they do is um, do the caring, the same family caring family does. They contribute to the cooking, the cleaning, they help bathe the patient, the person feed it, feeding them. They do all those things. And I have spoken, I was a visiting professor at one of these schools, Leiden University in Holland. And I spoke to many of the faculty who were graduates of the medical school. And they said this was the single most important experience they mm -hmm. had in medical school because they never forgot after that how illness experiences, serious ones, are centered in the family, in families. And the second thing we can do is we can select medical students as we're increasingly realizing we must, not just for their cognitive brilliance, but for evidence that they have the skills that are we relate to care. Mm -hmm. And I think we haven't done that. And then we can put the time in, in medical training to show how important this is so that no one should be allowed to graduate from a medical school who is not an, an effective caregiver. And I can tell you today, many people graduate from medical school who don't have the empathy, who don't have the skills in interpersonal communication. Uh, they shouldn't. They should, they should, just in the same way, if you fail your pathology course or your internal medicine course, you don't graduate from medical school. If you fail your uh, communication, your communi communication skill course or your course of, of in demonstrating that you can really take care of people, you shouldn't graduate. So I think that's the, those are the things I would say at an end. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. And Thank I, you so much. I feel the one thing I did leave out, and I maybe I should come back to just as a minute, Please given do. the focus of your program, is the, um, is the, uh, the spiritual side of this. So uh, I'm not a person who usually uses the language of spirituality. Mm -hmm. I'm more comfortable with a moral language. But there's no question that what I've been describing, you could re-describe in spiritual terms. If I were uh, a true believer, I think I would say I found divinity in the acts of human care. That's a beautiful way to end. Uh, the Hindus would call that karma yoga. And um, I really appreciate your, your giving us that uh, denouement. Uh, it's a, a message all of us should hear. We thank you very much for your time. Again, everybody, I've been speaking to Dr. Arthur Kleinman. His book is The Soul of Care, published by the Viking imprint at uh, Penguin Putnam, and we'll have all that posted on board. Thank you again, Dr. Kleinman. It's been a pleasure. Mr. Goldberg, appreciate it. Bye-bye.